This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. P22 is such a great ambassador for people to lift off the techie terms and show the reality, this poor lonely mountain lion trapped in LA. People could relate to that. Welcome everyone to another episode of Annenberg Learner Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Beth Pratt, a lifelong advocate for wildlife. Beth has worked in environmental leadership roles for over 30 years, including at Yosemite National Park and Yellowstone National Park. As the California Regional Executive Director for the National Wildlife Federation, Beth leads the Save LA Krugers campaign to help build the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, which broke ground on Earth Day in 2022. Upon its completion, the crossing will be the largest wildlife bridge in the world. Beth is the author of several books, including I Heart Wildlife, a guided activity journal for connecting with the wild world, and When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, People and Wildlife Working It Out in California. Beth, it's a pleasure to welcome you on the Learner Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here. Um, So I'll just dive in. You've had many years of working in environmental leadership roles, including with the two uh, of the country's largest national parks, Yosemite and Yellowstone. Could you talk about how you got interested in this work and what led you down this path? Yeah, it's it's been kind of a weird life journey. You never know where you're going to end up. But most of my career has been in places like Yosemite and Yellowstone. I actually live outside Yosemite National Park where I worked for a decade. And even as a kid, I dreamed of working in these remote national parks and these, you know, sort of wilder places. And so to be advocating for the dating lives of cougars in such an improbable place of Los Angeles uh, is as a surprise to me as anybody. But I've come to really you know, recognize that um, wildlife conservation is not just about a Yellowstone and Yosemite, that indeed, when the number one threat to wildlife worldwide is a loss of habitat, we've taken so much from them. And in some um, ways, like with P22, they're coming back, right? They're reclaiming, uh, you know, where we had banished them from. But we need to start sharing spaces. We need to keep places like Yellowstone and Yosemite, but this sort of urban wildlife conservation and connectivity which is key to, you know, resiliency in the face of climate change. This notion of connectivity that goes along with that, connecting these spaces is, is also been a journey for me because I came up uh, 30 years ago now uh, in the conservation paradigm of you put aside a Yosemite, check the box, you're done, it works. Well, we now know scientifically it doesn't work. Islands of habitats isolate both plants and animals and that spells ultimately their their dooms. As uh, who someone famous said, islands are where species go to die. That is what we've created with our freeways. So um, that's just become my life's work. And actually, the short answer to this was it all comes back to P twenty two and you know his appearance in L A and how he really got me to look at conservation and how to do conservation differently. Thank you. You know, um, I guess I, I had never thought about that. This is a new 
new learning in the field about reserving these spaces for wildlife versus trying to integrate and connect with them. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? And is, is that accepted widely? And what other work do you see that's similar to this where people are actively working to connect these spaces? It's such a good question. And I, I think the, you know, it is not still widely accepted. Um, I think scientifically it's there, right? We now know connectivity is essential. And that was a new thing. Even when we started the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, um, now I think like you have books like, you know, Crossings that just came out with Ben Goldfarb, like this whole notion of connectivity has really captured both scientifically and socially sort of this new wave of thinking. But for some, it still is, I think, a leap. I did a TED talk on this some years ago and uh, I worked 10 years in Yosemite. I still have a lot of friends there. And one of their lead biologists who I'm friends with um, said to me after my TEDx talk, um, because I was talking about the need to share space that, you know, we can no longer think of wildlife needing to be here and people needing to be here that we needed to do so both scientifically, they need more habitat, but also socially, we had really done a disservice a long time in telling people they couldn't have relationships with wildlife. They, you know, that, you couldn't name them. Well, we're animals, right? I mean, we are related. Um, and so she came up, you know, she told me, oh my God, Beth, you know, that's everything I've been advocating against in my career. We try to keep people and wildlife separate in the parks. And, and, and she's like, you know, there's been scientific studies that wildlife is more stressed if they're in cities. And I'm like, well, who isn't? I am, right? But does that mean they can't, you know, live there? With a lot of change, it's something that, you know, some folks are just going to hold out on, but I, I am convinced, again, two reasons. Scientifically, the data is there. But socially, I think that, you know, P22 showed this too, that when you sever that connection um, with animals, because you're told in school growing up, don't name them. Animals can't think, they can't feel. And of course, science is now showing what all of us who's had animals our whole lives. No, of course they do. You know, I mean, orcas have dialects and elephants mourn their dead and even fish have emotions. Um, it's not quite like humans, but, you know, it's related. But the reason a lot of us got into conservation or love of wildlife or animals is not because of a scientific paper. It's because, you know, we watched a show like, uh, I don't know, Flipper or Born Free or read books like The Wind in the Willows. And so I think that taking away that kind of emotional connection and love to to animals by creating this, you know, almost discriminatory separateness has uh, been bad for conservation, but also bad for people. I mean, it's it's such a rich, wonderful thing to have a relationship with animals. Again, back to P22, so many people connected to him in ways that enriched their lives. I think it's getting there, but there's still a lot of people like, oh my God, don't anthropomorphize or, you know, wildlife and people should not interact. And, you know, I'm not advocating for people making pets of a mountain lion, but for me, um, I want people to just see them as neighbors. They belong in the landscape like us. And uh, P22 showed it's possible, even with large predators, that we can coexist. That makes me think how amazing you have been at bringing public awareness. Because, yes, there's the science that I don't know when that data has come out and then there's a public perception and then taking action and doing something about it. Um, so I'd love for you to share about P22, um, especially for our audience that is not in LA or California or may Who not know. Who doesn't know P22? That's like not knowing Brad Pitt. Come on. 
So can you tell us a little bit about what, what makes P22 special? And also, um, can you tell us about that tattoo? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had an old friend visiting this week, and certainly he's an educator in, in the sciences, but not, you know, biology or and we were talking about it and he put it so well. Um, he, he's like, it's almost like P22 absorbed all our sins, right? Like that he was sort of that face of animal suffering that compelled us to act. And I hadn't quite thought of it that way. I usually call him a, a relatable victim. You know, here's this mountain lion. If you don't know who he is, he, he sadly is not with us anymore. He um, passed away in December of last year. After 12 years living in Griffith Park, which if you don't know L.A., that is the middle of L.A., not on the outskirts, the Hollywood signs there, the Griffith Observatory is there. And he um, made a perilous journey when he was young, crossed two of the busiest freeways in the country, if not the world, to find a new home because mountain lions live alone and they can't share territory, especially if they're males. And most of his mountain lion relatives die on those roads. So he did something near impossible. And as somebody who's retraced his route several times, I don't know how he made it, but he went on to live for a decade, relative, you know, relatively peacefully in Griffith park, coexisting with celebrities and the 10 million visitors that this really small park gets every year. And although it was successful in that he made a life for himself, it wasn't exactly a success story in that he ended up trapped on this little Island of eight square miles of park, which is just surrounded by freeways and, uh, on every side but the south side. And then it's like Hollywood Boulevard, which of course is a little too urban. But it's not that he shouldn't have been there per se, but m most mountain lions have 100, 150 square miles territory. And he couldn't move in and out of the park because of these roadways. I'm sure he got there and was like, oh my God, I'm not going across those roads again. I'm here. So we mm -hmm. celebrated him, but he became this face of the whole issue, this poster cat for what connectivity does. And he was impacted by being trapped his entire life, never had a girlfriend. And even at the end, although he had successfully evaded cars for his whole life, gets hit by a car as he got older. But we owe a lot to him because through his story and people relating to it, we got the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing is under construction. And I think that's important. It gets back to what you said. Like, we need to love things before we act to protect them. And I come back to science is important. I can, you know, I consider myself a scientist, even though it's not my day job. We need the science to, you know, the science told us that these mountain lions were going to vanish if we didn't do something. The science told us what we needed to do, which was build a wildlife crossing. But the science does not get the public support. And how many, you know, species have gone extinct despite reams of science because the public didn't care. And I think that's where, you know, P22 is such a great ambassador for people to lift off a scientific paper, something very techie, fragmentation, you know, by you know, all that stuff, lift off the techie terms and show the reality, this poor lonely mountain lion trapped in LA. People could relate to that. And I think that was a real lesson in how to get stuff like this done. It caused people to take action. And I think that that's, that's really important to, to learn what motivates people. Yes. Thank you. And would love for you to share about your tattoo. Oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot. You know, I have a long sleeve shirt on, so I can't, but you see, um, this is my first tattoo. I had um, never gotten one before. Um, it was actually came about a, a friend of mine. Uh, I was having dinner with them early on when I started working on this. They were in, they had just retired. They were both in their late 70s and we're having dinner. 
and uh, they were uh, tech lawyers in Silicon Valley. And, and Jerry pulls up his shirt and says, look what I got. And he had this little bison tattoo. And I, I first was like, is that Hannah? And he's like, no. And I'm like, you just got your first tattoo at age seven, you know, whatever he was. His big cause that he would donate to was bison conservation. I said, well, what made you get your first tattoo? And he's like, well, I wanted to show a commitment to the bison. I was like, oh, that's, that's really nice. And I, you know, kind of stayed with me. And then a month later, we had a mountain lion meeting. And it was becoming apparent to me after I volunteered to help with this crossing, how big it was, you know, what a heavy lift it was going to be. And I found myself kind of almost on a whim at a tattoo artist in LA. He was this great guy. I still stay in touch with him, 24-year-old. And I'm like, handed him the Hollywood sign, you know, photo. I said, I, I want this on my arm. Well, this thing was half my arm, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to roll with it. So yes, now P22 is on my arm. And for me, it was a personal commitment. Like the Wall Street Journal ran a photo of it and I'd be sort of in a cafe a hundred miles from LA and someone would come up, oh, you're Beth and that's P22 and you're, how's he doing? Right. So it kind of became a billboard too, but I guess it is a thing to tattoo the the scientific project you work on. So. <laughs> Explore over 22,000 learning resources from the world's top science organizations for free at labexchange.org. Created at Harvard University, LabExchange gathers STEM content from across the globe together in one place. Educators can find teaching guides and narratives to create custom lesson plans, and learners can practice valuable skills in a range of virtual lab simulations and interactive animations. Visit labexchange.org, that's L-A-B-X-C-H-A-N-G-E.org to see how we're making STEM education more accessible to anyone, anywhere, for free. It's wonderful. And again, another way to really rally the, the public and, yeah. and show the, the commitment. Um, would love to hear about uh, opportunities for students. So I'm thinking about our your next generation of, of youth growing up who actually might be able to see these spaces as connected and part of their daily lives. A lot of our listeners are teachers and educators, and we'd love to share what opportunities are offered for them to learn about the wildlife crossing and to learn more about your work. You know, wildlife crossings are nothing new, but we are really, so we're taking sort of decades of science around how they were built, but we're also having to develop our own science because nobody's been crazy enough like us to put it you know, over one of the busiest freeways of the world. Most of these are in very rural areas. And so we're having to do things other crossings haven't, like sound walls and light, you know, mitigation. But also we're putting an entire habitat on the top. So lots of opportunities to learn about that. I mean, the, the first place you can start is the website 101wildlifecrossing.org. Lots of great information on the wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing. There's a whole 60-page FAQs, depending on what you want to look at. Um, there's a new book out, Crossings, Road Ecology. It is excellent. It is the New York Times named it like one of the the best books of the year. I mean, Ben was on Terry Gross. There's a whole chapter in here on the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing. But the book overall, if you want to learn about this new, you know, why connectivity is important is such an excellent primer. And I think those are good places to start. Um, I, I will say also, I'm always happy to come talk to students. It's one of my favorite things to do. Talk to classes, help them learn. What the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing did wasn't just, you know, or what the movement has done, wasn't just got one built, but crossings and connectivity are now 
part of the like the public mm-hmm. discourse in a way that it wasn't. And so there's so much great information out there, including like that Ben's book is so popular. I mean, you know, rotocology is kind of a techie topic, but the National Park Service research site too, if you want to learn about the mountain lions in the Santa Monica Mountains. Um, they have a Puma profile site that you can look at all the mountain lions they are tracking right now. Um, and just, you know, reach out to me. I'm happy to to um, help people learn more. And then socially, I think just, you know, looking at how we approach this work that this was, you know, since we're on a learner's podcast, you know, this was humbling for me too. being someone who was 30 years in conservation how do you do conservation work? We sort of turned it on its head. And that was me learning from people um, like Rue Mapp, Miguel Ordiana, you know, people who weren't represented in conservation, how to make sure that they were empowered and connected to the movement and serving on boards like Outdoor Afro and seeing not everybody connects to nature like I did. I see my role as empowering voices. So for example, Warren Dixon, a hip hop artist from Watts, uh, we met around the campaign. He was doing some work for something. I learned he's a hip hop artist. He started becoming enamored with P22 and started writing songs. So we, you know, funded some music videos. We funded in his community, a wildlife to Watts festival to bring wildlife to them. Um, you know, we have mural artists who see P22, you know, who paint P22. One, Jonathan Martinez. He's an incredible Latino artist. Um, Corey Maddy, who is this uh, incredible artist in LA who represents uh, LBGTQ. I'm sorry if I'm not getting the thing right, um, movement. So for me, this campaign started becoming about empowering and uplifting how everybody connected to P22 differently. And it has become a movement in that we're going to not just get one crossing built, but more. And we just had our eighth annual P22 Day Festival. And I mean, we sold out the Greek theater for a a celebration of life for Mountain Lion. Um, You know, it's going to get more done. And I think that that to me is what's interesting about this. It wasn't just a one-off project. We've launched a movement that is going to continue. And that's by about being welcoming and inclusive. Thank you. Thank you for for that. I think uh, traditionally we've we've worked in our own disciplines and... Mm -hmm. And the real problems that need to be solved require work at the in, in interdisciplinary spaces and with people that um, have expertise in other areas or interests in other areas. Yeah, exactly. And and listen, I will say, much like the sort of urban wildlife, it does not always go over. I mean, I get challenged even by my own organization of people who think anthropomorphizing is bad or. Or I remember mm-hmm. early on, somebody said we did a hip hop mock-up of P22 and like one of our scientists was heavily offended by that. And it's the right thing to do though. And it's taught me to just, hey, uh, if it, you just have to sort of ignore the criticism because it's just people aren't as far, far along as you are in, you know, how the world needs to operate these days. You know? Sure. Thank you, Beth. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our learner audience? Since this is an Annenberg podcast, I mean, the, the partnership with Wallace Annenberg, Cindy Kennard, and the Annenberg Foundation um, is astounding. Uh, you know, it really does that overused adage, it takes a village, it does. And much like, you know, we're talking about how P22 socially connected people to each other to build a movement. Um, I think the, you know, the Annenberg Foundation was not just a donor in this, but a partner and really helped and continues to help us launch this work in meaningful ways by, you know, investing in leaders like me, investing in 
again, not just writing a check. And I'm very grateful to them for that. The other thing I'd, I'd say is just that I was rewriting the preface for my book with Mountain Lions or Neighbors or writing a new preface, actually. Uh, they're re-releasing the book. And people ask us all the time. I get asked to talk a lot, not just about the crossing itself and what it's going to be, but how we did it and how we did it differently. Uh, I just did a talk for Secretary Wade Crowfoot's leadership team. So of all the, the natural resource agencies across the state and I'm like, just get outside your usual thinking. And I think in the P22, what we did is replicable. Not everybody has a mountain lion in their city, but you don't need it. It's just find that landscape, that that wild animal that people connect to, empower that connection and love, and then people will act. So my new motto to people has been find your P22 that can connect you as a neighborhood, as a community, as a city, whatever it is. And it gets back to, I think, how all of us connected to wildlife as kids or even later as adults. It captured our imagination. It captured our love. And that to me is what leads to action more than anything else. And I think that we've, as especially if you're working in conservation or even education, um, you know, you can teach people the science of mountain lions and you need to. But I would start first with the stories and then like the kids or the young people are then going to want to learn about the science. That's what we saw with P-22 is that we were having a lot of fun with them. Like, you know, we do who's hotter, Brad Pitt or P-22 polls. And so people would sort of get come into the cause more because it was kind of fun, but they started learning more about mountain lion behavior. So, you know, don't forget that emotional connection for me is what really leads to learning. everyone to another episode of the Annenberg Learner Podcast. On today's teacher influencer segment, math interventionist Carrie Brown tells us how she uses social media to connect with other teachers online. Carrie has been teaching in Central Alabama for 14 years and has experience in kindergarten, first, and second grade. Carrie infuses her love for technology into her teaching using tools like a digital calendar and a digital whiteboard. Much of Carrie's teachings can be found on her blog, called Enchanted Kindergarten. She shares everything from end-of-the-year ideas for the classroom, how to make reading fun, and so much more. Hi, Carrie. It's great to have you on the Learner Podcast today. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd love to start with just having you share a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in teaching math? That's a great question because I never wanted to be a teacher. So it's kind of funny that I turned into a now focus on math type of person. But a few years ago, when everything was science of reading, and we were doing all of the science of reading, um, professional developments, and just all of this training around reading, I'm sort of a rebel. And so I was like, Oh, my gosh, y'all are doing all this reading. Let me go and learn more about math. And so on my own, I started just looking up like research articles. I started getting my own PD books on my own free time. And just I started becoming curious on why are we teaching what we're teaching, especially because at the time I was teaching kindergarten. And, you know, I'm the person, yes, you tell me to do this, 
but like, why am I doing this? And so I started trying to figure out what was the reasoning behind why I was teaching what I was teaching. And so that just kind of led me down a big, huge rabbit hole of math, everything. What is the approach to teaching math in such early grades? So um, my understanding is that people don't really specialize until the middle school years. So I'm very curious about you wanting to take that route again in math at such an early stage in kids learning, which I think is fantastic, by the way, the earlier, the better. (laughs) I think there are some places that do allow elementary teachers to specialize in math. I've never been at a place that allows it. I did ask one time and it was a, a firm, hard no. Not to say that it hurts kids, but it's, it, it would be nice if it was an option for elementary students, because if somebody is just focused on math, there's so much more you can learn and to help the children. But it's like, we have to do everything. You have to teach reading, you have to teach math, you have to teach science, you have to teach social studies. And just introducing students to math in general is kind of tough when some children have never gone to preschool, have never you know, been anywhere but home. And then it's like, okay, by the end of the year, they basically have to leave kindergarten adding and subtracting fluently. And you start the year teaching them, this is a number, this is this. So like you said, they don't really specialize in math until upper grades. What is your approach to teaching math or philosophy around teaching math in kindergarten and those early grades? So um, one of the things that I've kind of been researching and just learning more, and I'll say I'm not an expert at all, is I kind of started with number sense, what students need to know, and basically the foundational steps and starts of just math in general. And I think now I'm in a place where it's so important for students to just have number sense in itself and just know like the ins and outs and being able to be fluid with numbers and counting and being flexible with numbers. Like if I could go backwards in time, I would teach myself that a long time ago because I know I didn't do a great job on it, you know, every year that I taught, but now I know better. So I think now that's my big philosophy that number sense is very important in primary. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up actually because um one of the resources you offer in Enchanted Kindergarten, your blog, are tools around number sense and flexibility with numbers. For those in our audience who may not know, although that might be rare because we're mostly teachers, what does that mean? And can you give an example of one of the tips you give to teachers on how to develop number sense? Yeah, so like one of the, I would probably say the easiest way for students to master like all the parts of number sense is just having a routine of counting. And one of the ways that I do that is through something called counting collections. Like once you have taught your kids how to do the routine, quick 10 minute or less routine that could be daily or like three times a week. But as long as you're, you know, actively doing it, students just grab a set of objects depending on what time of the year it is, or if it's first or second grade, of course, they can go with a larger set of objects. But for kindergarten, I always start with like five at the beginning of the year, and they just learn how to count them. And we practice on being accurate, and then they can record that group of objects, and then they learn to record that number. So let's say they have, um, let's say I put in some glue tops, 
because I literally will give anything to count. So let's say if I give them some glue tops, they count the glue tops. They can actually tell me when I say, okay, how many did you count? They can tell me, I'll ask them how they counted them because sometimes kids will line them up or if it's something they can stack together, they might put them in a stack and make a tower. You know, it just depends. And so it's just the talk of numbers and how you can count them and what ways can you put them together to count. And once they start doing that, they get so much better with being flexible with numbers and being able to manipulate things and realizing, oh, if I add one to this, I know that five plus one is six, or if I take one away and they get really quick with it, instead of just like memorizing something, they're able to be flexible with the numbers. Yeah. And I love that um, there's a tangible component. So you mentioned giving them things that they can touch. Um, I'm sure that's a big part of them developing that fluidity with numbers. Yes. So, um, so you've been teaching for many years and you have a lot of expertise in this space. What models of teaching and learning do you see that support those uh, 21st century skill development in kids? And I know, you know, we typically talk about those as they get older, uh, but I'm always curious because I myself have never worked with really young kids. I'm, I'm wondering what are those foundations to then develop those skills? It's funny that I just kind of talked about counting collections. So like I literally will start that in kindergarten, probably the second week of school. And I started in partners. So from the very beginning, they learn how to work together and work in groups and they come up with different ways. So one of the things that I try not to do to get them to think on their own and not just go with whatever Miss Brown says is the way to do things. I ask them like, how would we? So we always do like a, a chart. How can we count this or different ways to count things? And they come up with the list. And so usually when I'm showing them how to count or how to get through a problem or how to come up with a solution, I try not to show them because you know how five and six year olds are if you show them that's the only way they're going to do it because they think that's the only way and so when I just kind of start asking questions and allow them to kind of guide the conversation and let me know how to do it then I kind of push it on them and I'm more of a facilitator and I think that's like really huge and I know that was a thing a long time ago probably like 10 years ago in education where they were saying as a teacher you shouldn't be the one tired when you get home. The students should be tired because they should do all the thinking. They should do all the problem solving. They should be figuring out how to do everything. And as a teacher, you should be the facilitator. And I think that's still very true now to get them to work in groups, to get them to figure out how do I work with a friend and come up with this answer? And then what do you do if you have an answer and your friend you're working with has a different answer how do you figure out what's the correct answer and how do you talk to each other and figure that out? And so another thing to kind of go with your question, because I know I'm getting off topic a little, but math talks is huge with just teaching children how to talk about numbers and how to talk with their friends in their classroom about numbers and, you know, just how to have a conversation on well, I know this person said the answer is five, but I know that the answer is six because, and then they're able to actually talk out how, you know, that all makes sense. And believe it or not, in kindergarten, they can do that. <laughs> That's amazing. I'd love to hear it. 
Uh, it, it's um, striking how it's very similar to teaching older kids, uh, you know, the, the part about facilitating it and having them justify their answers. I haven't had a lot of experience listening to little ones talk in that way, but that would be amazing to hear. <laughs> All right. Well, switching gears a little bit, uh, one of the reasons we have you on today's episode is also to highlight your work and your following on social media. Um, your handle is Enchanted Kindergarten, and I'm curious to know how you use Instagram and social media in general when it comes to your teaching. Ooh, that's a great question. So um, I started a long time ago wanting to, I, I guess I really didn't want to have a presence. I just wanted to share what I was doing in the classroom because I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. We did this. And then, you know, I would post about it. And then lo and behold, I started having people to follow me. And I was just like, oh, okay, this is a thing. So people are following <laughs> me. And now it's just like a, you know, a completely different thing. But most of my audience and the people who follow me, follow me because um, I was very big into technology. And that was a lot of what I was teaching about how to use it and how you can use it with kindergarten, because it is really difficult to teach a classroom full of 20 something children how to get on technology, how to use it without you wanting to pull out your hair. I think that's, you know, why a lot of people started following. But then within me talking about technology, I was still talking about the everyday teachings of what's going on and just like real life that. Yeah, it's hard, but it can still be hard and fun and figure out, you know, still like, how do we get through this together? And I think that's probably why I still enjoy using social media to like teach things like that and to help other people. And I've gotten like a lot of messages, which is funny from new teachers who've either found my website because they've searched something and then they'll question, well, how do you do this? And how's that? And I guess thinking back, it's kind of crazy that you can help somebody just by like one post and you really have helped somebody and made their day easier. When I think about teaching and maybe it's different now, it's been a long time since I've been in the classroom, but it, it could be very isolating. So you don't necessarily know if what you're doing is the best thing and um, being able to see another teacher and what they use and how they do it and actually see them in action is so powerful but there's sometimes very little opportunity for that. And probably social media, it helps highlight that. I completely agree because funny thing, some of my very best friends I met because of social media. So very thankful for that. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I just um, wanted to ask a little bit about the tech that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, what challenges do you see around tech adoption among those early teachers? What is the hurdle there? Um, so I, I guess classroom management might be one of them. Anything else? Oh, there's a lot. I think just the thought of scares people sometimes so they don't even try. But once you have somebody to give you a step by step on, OK, it can be easier if you take it in smaller chunks and this is how you do it in smaller chunks. Then they're like, oh, then maybe it's not so bad. And then when you give them things to do on the technology that is not just, oh, let me just put them on technology so they're doing something, but it's actually meaningful things, then I think people see the difference in, okay, it's not so bad. And I can take a few minutes out of the day to teach them how to get on because I'm one of the people that I really want my kids to be really, really independent because again, 
you are going to be so tired at the end of the day if you're doing it all and not trying to put some of the work on the students. And I think once teachers figure that out, that they just need like a child who's in charge or a couple of children who are in charge and you kind of put it off on them, then it's a whole lot easier to manage. But yes, the management is insane of just being able to do, even just like plug this thing about every day, plugging up all of the devices, unplugging all of the devices, making sure something's not wrong. If a kid's card doesn't work so they can log in, like there's just so many things. And especially um, during COVID, it was insane mm-hmm. that they changed my students' login to like this 10-digit number. And I was like, how am I supposed to type in a 10-digit number every time every child has to get on the computer? So it's just little things like that that will just stop a teacher from even wanting to try. But, I mean, there's little tricks to get around everything. So, Well, that's great. And your experience uh, really is highlighted here when you say um, putting the burden of them doing the work, putting it on them. Um, I think that's probably contributed to your longevity in education. Because <laughs> if you don't figure it out, it can be exhausting to be a teacher, as you said. I completely agree. It is exhausting. <laughs> Just thinking about it is exhausting. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you would like to share with the learner audience? Oh, of course, I always have tons of things to share, but I think okay. I will just share a thought, more so like a mindset type of thing. Every year, I always focused on trying one new thing. So I wouldn't try to do like five new things, even though there's all these sparkly new things to do every year. I always focused on one thing so I can get really good at it and then master that the whole year. And then the next year, I can add in something else. And even if it's like math, if someone thinks that they aren't a great math teacher or you're not strong, then that could be your thing this year is just to focus or math and get really good at that before you add in something else. And I think that that has always helped me to save my sanity. The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org and annenberg.org to learn more.